0: beginning at verse 12, and we'll read through the end of verse 19. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him, and began to shout, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, and as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. For this reason also the people went and met him because they had heard that he had performed this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good? Look, the world has gone after him. Let's pray together. Our great God, You are great and greatly to be praised, and Your Word is great, and we thank You that You have revealed Your greatness to us in the person of Christ, in whom dwells all the fullness of our Godhead in bodily form. We pray that You would send Your Spirit now and teach us concerning You and Your revelation, Your Word. We thank You that You can be glorified through the preaching of Your Word, and it is our desire that that would be the case here today. May You be honored in and amongst Your people. Through Your Word we pray in Christ's name, Amen. Well it is undeniable that there is something about being part of a large crowd that is exciting and this is probably part of the allure of being at live sporting events when you are there with a group of people who are all chanting and desiring the same thing it can be very uh, very exciting and very engaging I have had the blessing in, during the course of my life to be at four different NFL events and they are exciting there's something about being there for the live the actual live event and being part of the crowd uh, I've been to two of them at Candlestick Park in San Francisco, and two of them at uh, Seattle. two of them at Seattle. Two of those were very memorable events. And the last one that we were the last one that we were at in Candlestick Park, we were actually there with our entire family. Now, that sounds expensive at first. It was actually during a time when they weren't winning really any games. It was the season that they went six and ten, and so tickets were were cheap, to say the least. Uh, in fact, that's how we got them. My cousin's two kids were going trick-or-treating, and they got them in place of candy, and so they, we decided we go to the game. So we went to the game, and, and they lost that game. And during one of the breaks in the game, I got up to go to the to the bathroom with my oldest son. We, you don't just send him off to the stadium, go find a restroom, and come back in a place like that. And so as we were walking through the crowd, Shepley turned to me, and he said, Dad, there are a lot of 49er fans here. And I said, I know, son. There's... Like 70,000 of us all together. And he said, I just didn't know that there were so many. And I said, Well, we are in San Francisco. And when you watch the game, when our game is not bumped to play some local broadcast, some local team playing, when you watch the game, you see the stands filled with the red shirts and the red jerseys. And he said, I know, but it's different seeing it in person. And it is different seeing it in person. And I told him, I said, they're, they're, Living where we live, sometimes you start to feel like you're the only one. The, the only 49er fan that exists. And there's something about being part of a large group that is, is engaging and enthusiastic and it just grips you and you get caught up in the emotion of it. And whether you are part of a of a crowd of college students who are all shouting hope and change, hope and change, take our hope and take our change. Or whether you are part of a live sporting event and you're part of the crowd caught up and all cheering for the same thing. Have you seen the the, the video clips on television of, well, that even happens today, but I was going to say back when. The Beatles came to America and Elvis was alive and performing. You see all the, the girls up front in the crowd and they're screaming and they're weeping and they're crying and they're falling down and fainting and passing out. Where does that come from? How? What is that? I mean, if that was you 20 years ago or 30 years ago or yesterday, I'm sorry to hear that. But where does where did that type of enthusiasm come from? That can only be the product of being part of a crowd. That can only be the product of being part of an emotional event. And there is something about being part of a massive event like that that captures our emotions and drives them to a whole nother level. So it is not difficult to imagine the excitement of the crowd on Palm Sunday when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of that donkey. Now with that seamless and almost imperceptible transition from football to John chapter 12, we're going to be picking it up in verse 12 and looking at this, this second event from John 12. Remember there are three main events. The first one is the anointing of burial in verses 1 to 11. The second one is this triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And I want to recapture quickly a couple of introductory remarks to sort of set the stage that we went through uh, last Sunday. First, you will remember that these two events are very unlike one another. Uh, they're both very appropriate. In the first event, Jesus is anointed for burial, and that event sort of prefigures his death, his sacrifice, his giving of his life for his his bride, the church. The second event is his uh, a prefiguring of his reigning and coming reign as king. Now, those are not two contradictory pictures of Jesus, but two very Complementary pictures of who he is and what he came to do. He is both sacrificial servant and conquering king. And John records these two events back to back. The second thing to remember is that this is one of the few events that is recorded in all four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all thought that this was significant enough to record the events of the triumphal entry. So this captured their attention. And with the limited space that they had, they thought that this was theologically and historically redemptively significant enough that it was worth telling us about. So this is recorded in all four Gospels. And then the third thing I want to remind you of is how different this behavior by Jesus is than anything else we are familiar with from the rest of the Gospels. In most of the time, we see Jesus withdrawing from the crowd. He wasn't an attention-getter. He wasn't an attention-seeker. He was not somebody who, who sought out the crowds and, and, and tried to be at the center of attention all the time. Usually when crowds gathered, they tried to have their way with Him, make Him be King, make Him give them things, make them heal... And most of the time, Jesus withdrew from the crowds, not because uh, he was trying to remain quiet and private, but just he wasn't seeking out after that kind of attention. So here in John 12, with, in all the Gospels, with this triumphal entry, we have behavior that is different than what we get anywhere else concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. Here he is in control of the situation. He is, is not just controlling the situation. The whole thing is orchestrated for his purposes to present himself as king to the entire nation in the most public venue possible. Now with this triumphal entry, it's kind of difficult for me this last week to try and plan how to, how to work our way through this and really try and capture all of it. So I think I've come up with sort of a schedule for the next few weeks of how to how to go through this passage. Today we're going to look at verses 12 through 15. We're just going to look at the triumphal entry itself. We're going to look very briefly at the accolades of the crowd, the two quotations from the Old Testament, um, and then next week, since the, th- the quotations from the Old Testament are significant, next week we're going to jump back into Psalm 118. That is one of the most quoted psalms in all of the New Testament. Of all of, of all the psalms in the New Testament, that is the most quoted, one of the most quoted ones. So we're going to look at that entire psalm because it's significant. And the fact that the crowd is chanting this, we want to we want to ask, what did they understand concerning what they were chanting? What were they expecting? So next week we're going to look at Psalm 118, and then the following week. We're going to look at Zechariah 9, verse 9, which is the prophecy quoted in verse 15. We're going to jump back and look at Zechariah's prophecy concerning not just this event, but this person, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to capture Psalm 118 next week, Zechariah 9, 9, and then we'll jump back into John 12. So that kind of gives you a a little bit of a picture of where we're going in the next few weeks. And those Old Testament passages are significant and they're loaded, they're theologically rich, and we want to make sure that we, we understand this. From the perspective of one of the Jews with what a Jew would be anticipating and what would have unfolded in front of them and, and why it is that these quotations are significant. So let's begin by looking just at the crowd. And we're going to note, first of all, in verse 12, their anticipation. Today we're working through verses 12 through 15, including those two quotations. Look at the anticipation of the crowd. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him. And began to shout. Um, Now that large crowd. This is. um, Oh, by the way, verse twelve says it was on the next day. And there's something in my memory, and this could be wrong. That I remember saying that the anointing happened on a Friday. That wouldn't have been true. That would have happened on a Saturday because the next day was a uh, Psalm Sunday, the first day of the week. So this triumphal entry happens on a Sunday. Verse 1 of chapter 12 says it was six days before the Passover. That puts it on a Saturday, not on a Friday. So the anointing is on Saturday. If I got that wrong in somewhere and you wrote that down in your Bible, I'm sorry, I need to start providing whiteout on the table at the back so you can make corrections. So just make that a note. This is The the triumphal entry is on a Sunday. The anointing is on the Saturday prior to that. So on the next day, this large crowd of Jews who had come up to Jerusalem for the feast, that is the feast of the Passover, and it was a large group. And, And you remember from chapter 11, verse 55, that some of the Jews began to travel up weeks ahead of time for the sake of purifying themselves before they celebrated the Passover. So Jerusalem for Passover was a magnet for Jews from all over the all over the then known world. Every, it was mandatory that the Jews attend Passover celebration in Jerusalem. So they were coming out of Egypt and Ethiopia and Turkey and Macedonia and from the east and the west. And as far away as they could, they were coming, sometimes spending days or weeks traveling to Jerusalem to be in that city. It is difficult, and I've said this before, for us to capture kind of an idea of the crowds and the busyness. And I want to give you sort of a visual illustration for this that I think will be helpful. I got out this last week. I got out my handy little Bible atlas and I asked myself, how big was the city of Jerusalem in Jesus' day? Now, if you take the city of Jerusalem at its widest point, because there was walls around the city, and there are some outlying regions around this, but if you take the city of Jerusalem, the walls at their widest point in Jesus' day and their tallest point in Jesus' day, and you just you square that out. Because it was kind of a, a wonky-shaped city, it wasn't really perfectly square or perfectly rectangular. But if you just square that out, it would be one square mile of real estate, and that's that's, pl- that's actually probably adding 10, 15, 20 percent to it because it was it was narrower than that in most spots. So just being generous, one square mile. Now to put that into perspective, if if Jerusalem were in Sandpoint, Idaho, that means that our north wall—picture this—the north wall of our city would be at Super 1 there at the roundabout on Larch. The south wall would be at Memorial Field. The east wall would be on First Avenue. The west wall would be on Division Street. Now you could take the entire city of Jerusalem in Jesus' day and put it inside of those boundaries with room to spare, and that includes the temple. Massive temple complex inside of that those boundaries. Now picture in your mind a million people showing up to visit, or two million people showing up to visit. Can you get an idea of that now? And they're not showing up to visit an empty city. They're showing up to visit an already occupied city. Over a million people. The the crowds are enormous. I have seen uh, movie reenactments of the triumphal entry, like on the Jesus video or the Bible that was on the History Channel or wherever it is. And you know what you typically see? You typically see Jesus approaching the city of Jerusalem. And he sees the gate and he says, we need a donkey. This is a great idea. We need a donkey. we put it on a donkey. So they fetch a donkey, and he gets on the donkey. And then he rides 100 yards into the city of Jerusalem. While well, there's 150 or 200 people sort of along each side of the thing, cheering and putting down palm branches. That was not it at all. The gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, mentioned that Jesus had the disciples fetch the donkey when he was approaching Bethany. Where was Bethany? Two miles outside the city is where he sat on the donkey. And he rode that two miles into the city, in a mass of humanity that is almost unimaginable to us. So Jesus would have to start at the base of Schweitzer on a donkey to ride into Rose—not uh, Rose, uh, Super 1 there on the north end of the... That's how far he would have ridden, with people swarming on both sides. And Matthew and Mark and Luke mentioned that there were people in front of Jesus and the disciples, in front of the donkey. There were crowds of people behind the donkey. And here's the interesting thing about the different perspectives of the gospel writers. Matthew, Mark and Luke mentioned the crowd coming from Bethany with Jesus up that two miles on the donkey to, to, and you can imagine a million people how many people would have seen him. John mentions the crowd coming out of Jerusalem. It became known to those who had come up to Jerusalem for the feast that Jesus was coming toward Jerusalem, and they went out. John mentions a crowd. Hearing the noise, and you can imagine the noise of the crowd from two miles out, shouting and hailing and singing and, and all of that. And you know how we are with crowds. We hear the something, we see a crowd form, and we want to know what? What am I missing? I want to see what's in the middle of that crowd. Is it a fight? Is it uh, somebody doing miracles? What's going on there? So this would have caught the attention of the people in Jerusalem. So you have the crowd of people, a mass of people coming from Bethany with Jesus toward the city of Jerusalem. The people in Jerusalem hear Jesus is coming, They cut palm branches, and they go out of the city to meet Him. So at some point between Bethany and Jerusalem, you have these two masses of humanity that meet up, and Jesus is right in the middle of all of that. How many people saw that event? Tens of thousands of people. How long did it take Him to work His way through that mass of humanity from two miles out on the back of a donkey into Jerusalem? This was not something that happened in 10 or 15 minutes, folks, and it's not something that happened in 10 or 15 minutes before 50 or 60 or 150 people. This was something that happened probably over the course of a number of hours and probably before the eyes of tens of thousands of people. Now, do you have that picture in your mind? That's the large crowd that John is describing. This this is beyond description. It is really beyond even our imagination. That's the large crowd of verse 12. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they went out with the palm branches and met him. Now, understand the the anticipation of the crowd. What, what do you think the Jews were talking about at the Passover feast? What do you think was at the top of their discussion? You know what they are there in Jerusalem to celebrate? What are they there celebrating? They're there in Jerusalem celebrating and remembering God's great, supernatural, miraculous deliverance of them from a dominating world power, which at the time was Egypt. And God did that through Moses. So they are remembering we were slaves. God sent a deliverer who delivered us from that bondage and from that slavery. And they are celebrating that and understand how much the Jews hated the Romans. They were at that time under the dominion of Rome. Rome took their money. Rome controlled their business. Rome controlled their lives. Rome manipulated their religion. Rome dominated and dictated everything to them. Everything that they did. It's difficult to understand living in a situation like that where the government takes everything you own, but imagine that. They hated the Romans with a passion, a purple passion. They hated them. And they wanted nothing more than to be free from Roman oppression. And it almost seems hypocritical for these Jews to celebrate a great deliverance from that Gentile domination when at that very time they were under Gentile domination. And they wanted nothing more than to be free of it. So what are they thinking about? What are they celebrating? What is at the top of their minds? God's putting down of Gentile nations and rulers and God's coming deliverance of the nation from Gentile domination. So when they are hailing Jesus as King as He is coming into the city of Jerusalem, what are they doing? They are welcoming somebody who they anticipate and expect is going to deliver them from Gentile domination. They were wanting... Not a spiritual king, but a material, physical, military conquering king. That was the expectation of the people. And what better time to welcome such a king than on the anniversary of the celebration of God's last miraculous deliverance. That's what they're anticipating. That's what they're expecting. So look what they do in verse 13. They took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him. And we've got to fill in a few details here that John doesn't mention in verses 13 and 14. Here are the few details. According to the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, at some point as Jesus was approaching Bethany, and John skips over this, Jesus said to two of his disciples, Go into the village that's nearby, maybe Bethany or another small village that was out there in that area, and you will find a colt." And they went in, and he gave them instructions, and and they came back with the colt. Now here's how Mark describes that, and I'm going to quote Mark to you. I'm going to read Mark to you since Mark is the fullest explanation of what happened. Mark 11, verses 1 to 6, As they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany, Near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt there, tied, on which no one has yet ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? you say, The Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it back here. They went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. Some of the bystanders were saying to them, What are you doing untying the colt? They spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. Now, When they brought those two disciples, brought the colt back to Jesus, the two donkeys, Matthew says they put the coats on them, both animals, maybe not understanding which one Jesus was going to choose. Jesus chose the colt, and then they helped Jesus up on top of the colt. And here's what you and I are supposed to pick up from the rest of the details of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Jesus was in complete control of this entire thing. He knew where the animal was at. He told them to fetch the animal. He knew what needed to be said. He knew right what animal he was going to use. All of it he is orchestrating. He is not being swept along. It's not the disciples who force him up onto the back of this animal and parade him into the city against his will. Jesus is orchestrating this whole thing for his own glory and for his own purposes. And he's in control of it. He's sovereignly controlling it. According to Matthew, it says that they cut the the palms from the trees. Mark says they cut them out of the fields, so it might have been palm trees in the fields. If this is happening over the course of a two-mile stretch, of, you could imagine that there are trees. There are fields, people are cutting these, and Luke says that they were also throwing their coats into the road. So you have palm branches and you have coats, and they're laying all of this out before Jesus as this entire event unfolds from Bethany, two miles out, all the way into the city of Jerusalem. And why did they use palm branches? Palm branches were not necessarily something associated with the celebration of the Passover. They were associated with the Feast of Unleavened, uh, sorry, the Feast of uh, Tabernacles. But why Passover? This is not something they would normally do during Passover that just happens to be, they just happen to catch Jesus up in this. They cut palm branches because palm branches were sort of a sign of, they would do this to welcome royalty, to welcome a victorious, conquering general. Um They would do this to welcome anybody that was notable or significant. Palm branches were symbols that actually the palm tree was a symbol of stability, longevity, life, prosperity, and strength. That was what it was a symbol of in their culture. This is exactly what the Jews expected that the coming king would bring to them. A kingdom marked by longevity, stability, life, health, prosperity. All of that is what they are expecting. So as they welcome Jesus into Jerusalem, they are doing so with the palm branches as if they are welcoming somebody who has gained them a great victory. When in fact what they are doing is they are welcoming somebody that they are expecting to gain them a great victory. That's the palm branches. Palm branches are also used in the worship of heaven, by the way. In Revelation chapter 7, John says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation and all the tribes and the peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So what are they doing? They're waving palm branches before this great dignitary who is sitting on the throne. It is a sign of submission. It is a sign of giving praise and honor to one to take something that that speaks of longevity and prosperity and glory and strength and laying that out before this individual. That is what they are saying of Christ. They're doing something in their actions that is actually reflecting something that they believe to be true of Jesus. So we notice their first their their anticipation and then their actions, cutting palm branches. Now I want you to notice thirdly their accolades. Look at verse 13. They began to shout, blessed, oh, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. That's the quotation from Psalm 118, which we're going to look at next week. Now there's something, there's a little bit of a difference in the, in what each of the gospel writers quote the crowd saying. And I'm going to read to you Matthew, Mark, and Luke, not the entire passages, but just the quotations of the crowd. And with your eyes here in John chapter 12, verse 14, 13, I want you to compare Matthew, Mark, and Luke and what they say with what John records. Matthew 21, verse 9, Matthew records the crowd shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Mark 11, Mark records the crowd saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And then Luke records, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, those quotations are each a little bit different, and I'm going to explain why they're a little bit different in just a moment. Each of those quotations is a little bit different, but all of them have two things in common. First, all of them are summaries or paraphrases or sort of capturing the essence of Psalm 118, the verses that they come from in Psalm 118. The second thing that all four gospel writers have in common is all of them contain the element of welcoming him as a king. Some said son of David was the title of kingship. They were expecting the greater son of David, their king, to come and to reestablish the Davidic kingdom, the Davidic throne in Jerusalem. That was their expectation. So they're welcoming him as the son of David. One of the Gospel writers records, Blessed is he who comes, the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Others, just he who comes in the name of the Lord. John says, the king of Israel. So all of these Gospel writers contain this element of of welcoming Jesus Christ as a conquering, ruling king. Now here's a question for you. Did Jesus come into Jerusalem for the purpose of conquering and overthrowing Rome? Did he come there for that purpose that day? He didn't. That was not his. That was not what he was coming to do. So why then does he receive the praise of the crowd when they are shouting this out, when this is what they are anticipating? They had no idea what was in store for them. Because Luke says that as he approached the city, he was weeping over them, saying, you have no idea what you are seeing. This is the day of your visitation, and you cannot even appreciate this. And Jesus, as part of this triumphal entry, some point between Bethany and Jerusalem, as he was approaching Jerusalem, he wept over the city, knowing what the city was in store for, knowing that they would not receive him as the type of king that he was coming as. They were anticipating something else. So why then does he receive the praise of the people? Because he not only receives it, he is orchestrating it. And J.C. Ryan, his commentary suggests that there may have been some sort of divine influence over the hearts and minds of the people that caused them to get excited and to receive him as a king in this way. So why was Jesus receiving this? Because when the Pharisees said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples, what did he say? If these are silent, the stones will cry out. He not only orchestrated their praise, but he defended it and said this is appropriate and it is right. But if they were welcoming him as a military conqueror, and he knew that, he certainly did, but he was not coming as a military conqueror, why did he receive their praise? I think it is because he knew what their expectation was. And what they are saying is technically, in all points, absolutely correct concerning his identity. See, it's not his identity that the crowd got wrong. What was it? It was the timing and the manner of what he was coming to do. That's what they got wrong. But everything that they are saying about him is true. He is the son of David. He is the king of Israel. He is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. He is the one who will establish and set up the the kingdom of his father David. He is going to do all of these things. They were welcoming him as that king. All of what they were saying is true, though the timing was wrong. And so he could receive their praise because what they were saying and lauding him as coming to do, he is going to do, but not on their timetable. As with everything else in this whole narrative, it is all on his timetable. He's coming to do it on his timetable, on his terms, and so he welcomes and he accepts their praise. Now, why the difference in quotations? Because if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of them have something a little bit different that the crowd is saying. Let me go back to the illustration that I started with of a football game. If you've ever been to a football game, then you understand that the crowd shouts different things at different times, right? But all of them are somewhat related to the event. Nobody shouts, I need a new car. Nobody shouts, I'm hungry for fried chicken. Nobody shouts that. They don't get that. What do they do? They all shout things related to the event in front of them. But they all shout different things. At one point, they might shout touchdown. At one point, they might shout uh, first down. At another point, they might shout defense. But they're all shouting things related to this one event, all of them talking about what is unfolding in front of them. Now that you have this picture in your mind, you have the crowd from Bethany coming up with Jesus, some in front, some behind, a massive humanity over the course of two miles and who knows how many hours that this took place. Because the other gospel writers say that when Jesus got into Jerusalem, it was getting late. And so he, he went and he walked around the city, he looked, and then he left. So he didn't stick around very long. He got there just at evening. So maybe this unfolded over the course of a number of hours. You have then the crowd coming out of Jerusalem, probably who are shouting something entirely different. All of them quoting Psalm 118 in their own words. So what can you imagine that the crowd over the course of these many hours would be doing? Some of them would be shouted, hey, this is the son of David. Others would be saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Others would be saying, welcome the coming king of our father David. All of them would be shouting different things over the course of this event. And so all four gospel writers recording something different, all record exactly what the crowd was saying, probably at different points during this entire event. All of them shouting the similar and same things about this thing, but all of them adding their own words to it. That's what we have in the four gospel writers. Now, look at verse... 13 or 14 Jesus finding a young donkey sat on it as it is written and then John quotes from Zechariah 9 verse 9 fear not daughter of Zion behold your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt so Jesus finding the donkey that doesn't mean that John is ignorant of the fact that Jesus sent two of the disciples to go fetch the donkey Jesus did find it he knew where it was at and he sent the disciples to go get it it was his his active participation in this in finding the donkey but John skips over all the other details about them going and getting it and finding it tied up and all of that Jesus found the donkey and he sat on it, and that in itself was a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. Now, why a donkey? Because of all the things that are happening here, this is probably the one element of this whole scene that just seems completely out of place. Considering what the crowd was shouting, you would not expect a donkey. What would you expect? A white stallion. A massive horse. Some animal of strength and dignity. A donkey was not that. Now, donkeys were not a humiliating form of transportation. They were not despised and rejected. In fact, if you read the Old Testament, you'll see that men like Abraham and Jacob and Job all measured their wealth in terms of the number of donkeys that they had. So they were, a, uh, they were a means of transportation, but as noble as they might have been, they are not what you would expect from a coming, conquering king. Instead, he rides in on a donkey, and I think that there are a couple of reasons why he was riding in on a donkey and not a horse. Though it was not a despised animal, it's not the animal of choice for a conquering king. And here, for a number of reasons, he chose a donkey. And by the way, don't forget, he could have chosen any animal. He could have. Even the choice of the animal, he just didn't grab whatever was nearby. He could have, by his own own providence and according to his own purposes, he could have arranged to have a white war horse outside the city of Bethany at that moment. And he could have chosen any animal to ride into, but why a donkey? Let me give you three reasons. First, because this was a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. That's number one, and it has to be number one. Matthew says he did this in order to fulfill what was written by the prophet. Jesus knew that he must enter into Jerusalem, and he would do so on a donkey. When he returns, he's not going to be riding a donkey. You understand that? He's going to be on a horse. And it's not going to be in offering terms of peace. He's not coming back to broker a peace deal with his enemies. He's coming back to conquer his enemies. So he could have chosen any animal. He chose a donkey because this would fulfill the Old Testament scriptures. And he is demonstrating to us, though the disciples didn't recognize it at the time, John says, he is demonstrating to us and anybody who had been there that this individual who is riding into Jerusalem is in fact the one of whom Moses and all of the prophets wrote. He is the one who fulfills all of these prophecies regarding the individual who would ride in, the king who would come to Jerusalem on a donkey. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. That's number one. Second, it indicates that this king is unlike any other king. Imagine that you are a Roman centurion and you're stationed in Jerusalem and you hear all of this ruckus. And it's busy enough with all the stuff going on. You hear the ruckus and the shouting of the crowd and you say, what, what's going on here? I'm going to go out and take a look. And then one of, your, one of your soldiers comes back and says, what's going on out there? Well, they're welcoming a guy as a king. They're hailing him as the son of David, coming to establish a kingdom. They're calling him king. They're lauding him as king, worshiping king, singing his praises as king. What would you wonder? What is this guy going to do as a king? Well Tell me, how is he coming into the city? He's riding on a donkey. Oh, well, we don't have to worry about him then, do we? If he's riding on a white war horse with an army in tow, that might be something we should be concerned about. But he's not. He's coming on a donkey. And I would say to everybody around there, this king is not like any other king. And the kingdom of our Lord is not like the kingdoms of this world. What do the kingdoms of this world value? They value wealth and pomp and circumstance and outward displays of their power and their strength and their things. That's not what the Lord values, and his kingdom is unlike any other kingdom. We cannot compare this king to Caesar or the pharaohs or Alexander the Great or anybody else. There's no comparison because his kingdom is unlike any of the kingdoms of this world. It's not similar in kind. His kingdom is This king is unlike any of the kings who have ever ruled and reigned. This is a man who is unique. And the third reason I think he chose a donkey is because of its symbolism of peace. It does bring the, it does communicate the idea that this one who is coming is coming in peace. It might have been odd for the people to see a man riding a donkey, whom they are expecting to overthrow Rome, and this would simply, this would certainly seem incongruous to the two of, the, to these two things together. They wouldn't see how these two things would go together. But Jesus is not intending for them to receive him as one who is coming to overthrow Rome. He intends for people to see him as coming in terms of peace and offering terms of peace. Leon Morris in his commentary on the Gospel of John, says that notable and honorary people would ride on a donkey sometimes, but it was always to express peaceable purposes. To negotiate a peace, or to negotiate a ceasefire, or to negotiate terms of peace. If you came on a donkey, it, it communicated, he's not coming to wage war. He is coming to offer peace. And that is the point of the donkey. He is coming lowly. He is coming not to overthrow Rome. He is not coming to overthrow the kingdoms of this world. He's not riding on a donkey, and so he is coming to bring peace to the people. And what they did not know, the people who received him, what they did not know was that the peace that he was coming to bring them was peace with God through his atoning death on the cross. That was the peace. He did not come as a war-conquering hero. He came to atone for the sins of his people on the cross and to broker or to create that peace with God through his death on the cross. That's the peace that is being spoken of. Let me close with this final uh, lesson I think that we learned from just the triumphal entry itself. As Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, he is, is not coming into Jerusalem sort of caught up in the emotion of the crowd. If you think that as Jesus is approaching Jerusalem, that he is entertaining notions in his mind, that, wow, the crowd's starting, finally starting to like me. I mean, they've been opposing me all this time, and they've been against me, and they haven't been believing on me, and now the people are starting to believe on me. Isn't this great? The, the tide of sentiment and public opinion is finally turning in my favor. Jesus was under no such delusions of grandeur and under no such illusions. We read back in John chapter 2 that Jesus knew the heart of the people. He did not need for anybody to testify to him about men because he knew what was in man. And as he is riding through this crowd, he knows full well that he is coming into Jerusalem not to be crowned as king, but to die on a cross. And that within five days, these same people who are crying out Hosanna would be calling for his blood, saying, crucify him. He knows that the crowd is fickle. Here's what you and I ought to learn from this whole demonstration, at least one thing. We'll move on to it more next week. Here's one thing that we ought to learn. The praise and applause of men is one of the most meaningless and useless and temporary and vain things that this world has to offer. The applause of men is the most meaningless thing that this world has to offer. How many people spend their time wanting to be accepted by the masses, wanting to be spoken well of by the people, and wanting to broker some middle road where they will not offend anybody? And the most meaningless thing in the world is the applause of a crowd. Because crowds are fickle. And they can go one way one day and go the next day the next day. Because they can be swayed whichever way the winds of change want to take them. Crowds are fickle. And the most meaningless thing in the world is the applause of men. And yet we are plagued. Plagued in a media-saturated society. We are plagued with this constant desire to be approved of by everybody. Our politicians never want to say anything to offend anybody so that they don't get in trouble and everybody will like them. And pastors never want to say anything to offend anybody because then everybody will like them. And celebrities never want to say anything to offend everybody so that everybody will like them. Everybody wants to be loved by everybody else. Everybody wants to receive the popularity, the applause, and the approval of the crowd. And it is the most meaningless, vain, empty, useless, temporary thing that the world has to offer. Remember that. Next time you are tempted to compromise your principles, or to do something just to seek the applause of men, the winds of change will change their opinion of you faster than you can shake a stick at. All right, let's bow in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for what you have done for us in Christ, and we look forward not just to His coming reign and as King, but what He will bring to this earth and what He will bring to your people. Yet we live in great anticipation of a future that remains still to be fulfilled for those who who own you and love you and call you Lord. We are grateful for His coming, not to overthrow the powers of this world, but to offer himself as a sacrifice on a cross on our behalf. Thank you for that atonement which has provided salvation for our sins, uh, from our sins, and provided your forgiveness for the weight of our sins. We lived under the weight of your wrath and under the weight of our burden of sin, and you have taken that away. And now we count ourselves among the blessed man described in the Psalms, the blessed one whose sins are not imputed to him, but instead has the righteousness of our God imputed to us. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for what we learn from Him and about Him in this passage of Scripture. In Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenay Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenay Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time.